The following message is from the 2017 IBCD Institute, Addictions, Grace for the Journey. All right, so this session is Controlled and Controlling, the Overlap of Substance Abuse and Domestic Abuse. My name's Chris Moles. So I think I recognize a couple of y'all, but for the folks who don't know who I am and I don't know you, I'll give you the quick rundown. I'm a pastor in a small church, a small town in my home state of West Virginia. In addition to pastoring, I have for the last 12 years worked with criminal corrections, specifically one day a week. I teach classes, lead groups, facilitate discussion with men who have been convicted of domestic violence crimes or they are under a protective order or they've been referred by some other government agency. Uh, In more recent years, I've uh, adapted that work to biblical counseling and my role as a certified biblical counselor. So I meet with individuals as well. The last decade or so, we've kind of lost track, uh, probably around 400 men or so that we've worked with specific to domestic violence. And so I do get a lot of questions from when I do this type of talk and people ask about building skill and, and knowledge. And I think for me, it's just experience and just vast numbers of guys like that we've dealt with so many guys and what I'd like to do uh, Lord willing is uh, present some material to you that'll help you in that process in particular with this topic of this overlap of substances and domestic violence okay let's begin with a word of prayer and then we'll jump into it Lord thank you for the opportunity uh, to learn uh, to observe to relate to people even violent people. Lord, we thank you that you died for violent men and that you've called us to come alongside both the hurting and the hurter to call them to you, to conformity to you. I pray that this would be a beneficial time and that we would honor you with that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Some housekeeping for those of you who couldn't join us for the pre-conference. There's a few definitions in your notes that I'm going to draw your attention to. Number one is more of the larger definition that I use when I'm teaching criminal corrections, when I'm teaching uh, uh, DOC workers or prison workers, that gives us kind of this large-scale view of domestic abuse. And that definition is a pattern of abusive behavior in any relationship that is used by one partner to gain or maintain control over another intimate partner. Domestic violence can be physical, sexual, emotional, economic, or psychological actions or threats of actions that influence another person. This includes any behaviors that intimidate, manipulate, humiliate, isolate, frighten, terrorize, coerce, threaten, blame, hurt, injure, or wound someone. I know, you got it clear, clear as mud, everybody good? All right. I didn't mention this, I probably should, because I just cracked a joke and three of you winced and four of you laughed. Um, I. I don't take myself very seriously. I would invite you not to either. Um, This type of work and the the volume of work that we do, and this is my fifth talk uh, this week, uh, I'd be both exhausted or crazy if I was stoic or too serious. I know it's a serious topic. I'm not making light of the topic, but I will crack jokes, and sarcasm is my spiritual gift. All right. With that said, (laughs) let's continue. So you'll see in that definition some of the key issues there that's really important to us. Number one is the word pattern. 
you can look at this list of behaviors and I think some of us can go, whoa, if this is the qualification, Chris, then everyone's a batterer. But notice that the key word here is a pattern of behavior. The other key for us is that it's used to exercise power and control. That's what feeds my definition, which is the much smaller one. The second definition, which is uh, in the book, um, The Heart of Domestic Abuse, which is the book that I wrote. An abuse of power, this is domestic violence, is an abuse of power manifested through selfishly motivated patterns of behavior intended to exercise or maintain control over one's partner. Uh, in the lecture, The Heart of Domestic Violence, I would encourage you to reference that. Uh, I go through that definition, uh, spend the whole hour walking through it. Again, to catch everyone up by way of review, here's what we're talking about and some of the things that we're not talking about. We talk about domestic, view, domestic violence. Some common forms of domestic violence that we may encounter. Number one is what the philosophically we call battering. Now this is tricky because in the legal sense, battering is like physical assault. And so someone gets arrested for battery when they physically violate someone. But in philosophical terms, when we say battering, we're really talking about coercive control. This is an ongoing, that's the pattern aspect, use of coercive and controlling action. So think domineering, dominating, power over. This includes things like intimidation and violence that targets a victim. This is going to be important for our discussion today because uh, we will have, say, a violent drunk that may not be a domestic abuser, right? Because it's very important that there's a target. Just because Jimmy gets in a fight at the football game because he's liquored up doesn't mean that he's an abuser, right? Okay, so that's uh, important that we have a target. And that person's safety and sanity is reduced. This is what we're talking about when we talk about domestic violence. There are a couple other categories that you may encounter that qualify as domestic violence, but not really what we're discussing. The, the second is resistive. Uh, we will talk some about that today, but this is primarily the violence or aggression or behavior that a victim uses. Both illegal and legal uses of force, which victims of battering use to mitigate, manage, or incite their abuser's use of controlling tactics. The violence is not uh, driven by power because many times uh, a victim is not powerful enough to overcome an abuser. And it's also not driven necessarily by coercive control. It's not pattern driven. It's reactionary. Uh, it's resistive to the violence being used against them. This is actually one you encounter in the courts far more than you would possibly realize. We encounter a lot of this in the court system where a woman is sentenced to my women's group, our women's group, because after five years of coercive control, one evening she comes home and she hits her husband with a frying pan as he's approaching her because she's scared. The police show up, he's bleeding, right? And then she acknowledges because victims are quick to assume guilt, and she says, yeah, I did it, it was illegal, so she gets arrested. Make sense? So she ends up in my group, and yes, we want to talk about how to resist well, how to resist properly, but at the same time, she's being punished because of an act of domestic violence. This is not necessarily our topic. We're talking more about the course of control. And then third, there are non-battering-related violence, and so I always like to put this out there because some of our... Um, some of our well-meaning, passionate biblical counselors will hear of an incident of violence, 
and jump to the conclusion that one person's using power and control. Uh, it may not be the case. That's why data gathering is important. This is neither an ongoing attempt to insert, exert control. It's not a response to coercion. It's not um, innocent. It's bad, but it may not fall into the categories. Some caveats to that that we didn't talk about yesterday that are important for our discussion today is the assumption of pathological violence. This is what the world actually tends to promote, that violence is genetic, environmental, uh, calls from an outside force. There's less assumption that violence is something that stirs within the heart of a person. Pathologically, this idea of uh, managing the pathology will end the violence. Some examples of that are the common things we're talking about today, that drugs and alcohol cause violence. Have you ever heard that? Okay. He's violent because he's using drugs or because he's using alcohol or because he's genetically dis, uh, uh, predisposed to it or because he's Irish or whatever, right? I never understood that one. Oh, I'm going to fight you. It's not, it's not genetic in that regard. There's no known, catch this, there's no known pathological cause of domestic violence, what we call battering. Similar to uh, mental health, people talk about mental health. You'll hear folks, well, he's bipolar or he's schizophrenic. My grandmother uh, was schizophrenic. She passed away last year. She had struggled with um, uh, the symptoms of schizophrenia for a long time. In her later years, she had Alzheimer's. And so her memories would always go back to her last delusion. So it was a really a hard time to keep mom all straight. Uh, and there were times where in her paranoia, she might take a swing at me with her cane. Was she a domestic abuser? No. She would have taken a swing at anybody with her cane. I wasn't a target of her abuse. Make sense? Of her violence. So when we're talking about domestic violence, we're removing these pathological causes. This is important for our topic today because even biblical counselors will get distracted which what, with what I will call either a co-occurring issue of substance abuse or addiction or a distractionary issue where if I can get you to deal with my addiction, then you can leave my power and control alone. Okay, so it's, it's kind of important to realize that we're not suggesting and there is no known pathological cause to battering. Um, you do see there, there are common couples violence uh, issues. There's no element of entrapment. That's not what we're talking about e either. So the question is, and I've kind of answered it, but I want to go into more detail. Do substances or do addictions cause domestic violence? In your notes, if we were to ask a room full of men, and we do this in our groups, if I were to ask a room full of destructive men, do substances and does addiction cause domestic violence, most of the men in my group will say, absolutely. Any idea why? It's an excuse. It gets them off the hook. Because to a man, and they can say, well, the only reason I was violent is because I was drunk, or I was high, or I was jonesing, or whatever, right? But unfortunately, it's not just destructive men that say this. If we were to ask a group of victims of domestic violence, many of them would echo that. Yes, if he could just stay clean, we wouldn't have these problems. If he'd remain sober, we wouldn't have these problems. If he wasn't addicted to sex, we wouldn't have these problems. 
And unfortunately, folks, the general public has echoed this sentiment for years that even though research never supports it, uh, the idea is, well, this has to be caused by something. That's where we have an advantage. I was just uh, in the, the podcast area. We were doing a podcast for uh, later on about this topic, and uh, we were talking about how biblical counselors are really positioned to do this work well because we have such a high view of responsibility and we view the heart a certain way. We're one of the unique groups of people that actually will acknowledge that violence begins in the heart of a person. Hello? Yes. Yeah. Amen. You don't make me violent. I don't make you violent. Wars don't get started by accident, whether they're global, national, regional, or relational. There's intent at every level. But unfortunately, the culture would lead us to believe that, no, there's got to be an outside cause because most people are really good. Or maybe because it's difficult for me to be violent, that it's impossible for you to be violent. But the reality is there are men in particular... And if you heard me talk yesterday, you know that I do believe this is a men's issue. There are women who are abusive, but uh, by and large, this is a men's problem. 85% of perpetrators are men. Um, of the 70-some percent of male victims of childhood sexual assault and domestic violence, the vast majority of perpetrators in those cases are men. Um, so if we can address this, we'll have plenty of time to talk about women's violence if we can just deal with men's violence first. I'd like to do one, <laughs> then we'll deal with the next one. A couple things about this idea of substances uh, that I think are easily debunked is you see these numbers in your notes here. A couple things about abuse. The abuser generally chooses the time, place, and victim, which indicates that he remains in control of his actions. If you know anything about substances and substance-related violence, it's not a matter of control. In fact, that's kind of the point, isn't it? to be out of control, and for an abusive person to remain disciplined enough to target a victim, to target a victim in such a way that he won't get caught, to target a victim in such a way that he won't get caught and won't be held accountable, all lead us to believe that it's something beyond an outside force. Secondly, the majority of heavy drinkers, for instance, are not battering. There's plenty of drunk guys <laughs> not using violence. I'm not promoting drunkenness. Please don't leave here and say, Pastor Chris said it's okay to get drunk, right? But there are things we can learn about general, general drunks, I guess, drunks in general, that teach us a lot about domestic violence. For instance, if you, maybe if you're like me and you have the family member who would have too much to drink and all of a sudden he's a wonderful singer. He's going to sing for everybody. Three of you. Three of you have known drunk people. Okay, for the three of us who've known drunk people, there's the, there's the guy who gets drunk, and he's a wonderful singer. Here's the truth. He already knew he was a wonderful singer. He just didn't have the courage to, to show you. See, alcohol has a tendency to lower our inhibitions. I tell my guys this all the time, especially the guys who go, well, I would never do this sober, is I'll say, alcohol changes your judgment, but not your values. What you believe about the world and God and others does not shift when you consume a product or you consume uh, a beverage or you take a substance. The heart's still the same. It just changes your judgment. Like the guy who thinks he can sing, you know, but he's not brave enough to do it because everyone else knows he can't sing. But man, he has a few in him and he's going to belt it out.
The majority of heavy drinkers, for instance, are not batterers. And the majority of abusers have also abused while they're sober. This is actually good investiga investigative? Investigative. However you say it. Um, when you're looking into something, this is what you should look into. Um, as you're going down and you're pulling the rope, this is a good place to go. If you can find instances in which these patterns are present while he's clean, or while he's sober, or while he's straight, then uh, you can connect those back to the times when he's using. See, this is the majority of guys are not only abusive when they're intoxicated or high, they've also abused while they were sober or clean. Uh, this quote in your notes is by uh, Larry Bennett, uh, not a believer to my knowledge, uh, but wrote a, a series of papers, two uh, journal, uh, scholar, scholarly journal articles that I thought were, were fascinating. One with uh, Patty, um, I can't remember Patty's last name, but she, uh, we lost her a few years ago. She passed away. She was an advocate in Alaska. And then another with another professor. And uh, Larry Bennett says this, although intoxication may trigger an individual episode of violence, and we all kind of agree with that, right? We've seen that happen. Not all who become intoxicating become batterers. It's important to note that batterers violence does not always stop when he stops using. There may be recovering alcoholics or addicts who continue to batter. So when we're thinking about the link, I just want us to understand that we're distinguishing between uh, cause and contributor, right? You've heard me say that. It's contributive, not causative. In the same way when we talked yesterday about children being affected by violence, violence in the home contributes to their development. It doesn't cause them to be a certain way. All right, it doesn't determine anything. So the, it's very similar here. These could be any number of uh, connections because there is a link. A couple of statistics for you that I found fascinating, and I think as I've been in the work, especially uh, in the service provision side of things in, in government work, I've seen this to be true. Between a quarter and a half of the women receiving services for domestic violence have substance abuse problems. So between one-fourth and a quarter of the women receiving services through local agencies have co-occurring problems. Now, this should not surprise us. If you recall our illustration yesterday, if you were there, if not, you can go back and uh, listen to the, uh, to the recording. We did an exercise with the grand piano, and we talked about the weight of abuse that abuse puts a great deal of pressure on the victim over a long, long period of time. Think of it this way, one bee sting hurts, a thousand bee stings will kill you. So it could be something that we would look at and say, well, that's not bad in an instant, but over five, 10, 15, 20 years, it can have some devastating effects. You've probably dealt in counseling with folks who are struggling with severe bouts of anxiety, right? And you've seen how it's affected their body. Their digestive system has changed, their heart is affected, their thinking is affected. Think about the times you've worked with folks in deep depression and despair and how their very thinking has been slowed down or altered. Our body is affected by things around us, true? I think the world would tell us that our body is what's controlling everything, this organic side, but I think we are brave enough, I hope to say, as biblical counselors, that body, soul, and spirit, body, mind, and spirit are so interconnected that they, they will not leave the other unaffected. And so, yeah, one beast thing hurts, a thousand will kill you. It, it should not surprise us then if we're counseling a lady who's been in a domestic violence situation or an abusive situation for years that she has turned to a substance or to self-medicating. 
Make sense? Whether she's using alcohol or maybe she's abusing prescription drugs or maybe she's uh, using marijuana to relax or what have you, uh, there's something to this. So keep that in mind. This one is uh, interesting too. Between 70 and 80% of women in substance abuse treatment are victims of domestic violence. I don't have the numbers. I don't know the control on this one. I don't know how many programs they surveyed for this. So this one may have some give and take to it. But I would not disagree, as I've worked in this field for a long time, a great deal of the women that we deal with, say, for substance abuse. And this is actually, you know, when we think about our women's groups. So let me put it to you this way. We run this women's group for women who are uh, guilty of committing acts of violence, okay? Uh, we get a number of referrals, not through traditional, they've been convicted of domestic violence crimes. We get more referrals through they're being treated for substance abuse and we found out that they were victims or they have retaliated in a way. And our substance abuse therapist is really cool to call us and she'll say, you know what, I think we'll just say, let me pick a name. We, I think Kelly would really benefit from y'all's discussion. I don't know she doesn't fit completely, but she's in our substance abuse group, and we're hearing this, this, and this. Uh, this I can speak to much more readily. Over 50% of the men in batter intervention programs have substance abuse issues and are eight times as likely to batter on the day in which they've been using. I would say of the men I work with, the vast majority of them, I would say this number's low. Um, the vast majority of men I work with, both Christians and non-Christians, here's the way I put it are so desperate to control another person, they tend to lack self-control in some other area of their life. Almost always a given as I'm questioning and pulling the rope, I'm going down this path to, to see what area of your life is out of control. I can't prove this. I don't have a Bible verse for this to stamp on it, but I kind of got this feeling God's given us enough wherewithal through... Uh, through just everyday life and his spirit to manage this, like what's right around me. <laughs> Anybody feel that way? And even that seems out of control, doesn't it? I kind of feel like if I'm spending so much of my energy trying to get you to do what I want you to do, uh, I'm going to fail in some other area. So it, it's amazing to me how many men I work with that I eventually uncover a drug, alcohol, pornography, gambling addiction. Some area of their life completely out of control. Half of partnered men, the study found, entering substance abuse treatment have battered in the past year. Again, I'm not surprised. They're, they seem to be co-occurring problems. A couple landmines for you to consider. I like to throw these out there because we can get tripped up. One potential problem for us is uh, the co-occurring nature of addiction and domestic violence is the temptation to address only the addiction as the root. Uh, the addiction itself may be a symptom of the same heart issue, or as I said earlier, it may be a tool used to distract or delay intervention for the violence. Here's what I mean by that. If I can convince you that all I need is sobriety, dude, if I could just get sober, this has been killing me. You don't understand, biblical counselor, this has been my life for 15 years. 
we can just find sobriety and I'll go through Mark Shaw's book and I'll read Ed Welch's stuff and I'll go to meetings and we'll work hard and, and he and you develop this really close relationship as you fight this addiction together. It benefits his ultimate goal, which is if I can keep you focused on this problem, then we don't have to deal with this problem. Because I'm just as happy to be a sober abuser as I am a high one. Does that make sense? It's a very common tactic. It's one that I see quite a bit, which is, yes, I'm, a, I'm gung-ho over here. If I can get Pastor Chris over here, then everything over there kind of stays out of sight. And so don't be surprised if you get drawn into that. The, the nature of pornography in particular and domestic violence, all of these in domestic violence are connected because addiction and control uh, are so linked Right? It, abusers in particular are not abusing substances to get numb or to escape. They're usually working it out of some aspect of control. I can handle it. No big deal. I got this. You know, I've got a high tolerance for alcohol. You don't even know how much I could drink. Like literally I've had guys say that. I'm not like a normal person. Oh, you're superhuman. Excellent. Awesome. <laughs> you're drinking man, right? <laughs> you, can, you can do anything. So this aspect of control plays into this. So don't be surprised that they co-occur in that regard, but also don't be surprised that uh, an individual might use their addiction as a means of distracting you, keeping you off, or colluding with you. Because you can become their greatest advocate for sobriety and um, never address their abuse. I, I said earlier, pornography is a big part of this because there's so many statistical and sociological studies linking pornography to domestic violence because of the objectification of women. Certainly that's a heart issue. Um, but I have found some counselors and biblical counselors get distracted with the pornography issue that they fail to address the actual root of objectification of women and how it relates to their spouse. You know what I'm saying? Does it make sense? And it's really interesting to me how we talk about the objectification of women and we want to honor women and value women, but we haven't connected to the one woman that he's called most directly to do so with. It's kind of like when my guys look at me in class sometimes and they say, well, Chris, you can't understand women. You can't understand women. And I say, good news, you've only been asked to understand one. You don't have to understand all of them. You just got to understand the one God gave you. Right? So yes. Practically speaking, do you stop and address the pornography at all, or do you do. just you do? I do. Time and then you go back. Yeah. If if he acknowledges it to me and confesses it, I address it. And depending upon the severity of whatever addiction, I'll run again co-occurring or co-occurring. Uh, counseling. In other words, I want him to know. You know, you've addressed this as a major problem in your life. I'm not going to disagree. But we're not going to stop this work to do this work. We're just going to be doing more work. <laughs> and, and of course, that gets a backfire, right? Okay. Separate sessions or same session? I could, you could probably do it in the same session. I think you just want to be aware and careful. And time and energy gets you more skilled on this. I just think you want to be aware to go back to the heart, right? Because you're going to deal with a lot of the same fruit issue when you've already uncovered the root issue. The, the distraction can be where you go down one path that you know is the right path, and then he confirms for you that's the right path because he goes, no, 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 over here. Like a magician, you know, the magicians, they're like sleight of hand. They're like, look at this hand while I hide the bowling ball in my pants over here or whatever they do. I don't know. That would be quite a trick. I would like to see that one. Any magicians in the house? Um, the misdirection, right? 
So as long as you're aware of that, I, you can, I think you can do the work. Uh, how does it manifest? Let me give you some specific things that I look for. I actually have this list uh, in one of the binders that I use. And so when I'm dealing with a, a, what I think might be a co-occurring case where a guy is struggling with uh, especially a substance abuse or any addiction, really, I've got a list of certain things that I'm looking for. You have in your notes just bullet points. I want to fill in some of that. How does domestic violence, how may it manifest in conjunction with a specific addiction? Uh, with alcohol, we're talking about a hypnotic sedative. Uh, in other words, what I said earlier, alcohol reduces some of our bodily functions. You know this possibly, like heart rate and breathing. But it also reduces inhibitions, like I said earlier. So some of the common behaviors consistent with an abuser who uses alcohol is patterns of, uh, uh, patterns of escalation. He's, his thoughts of control, his thoughts of abuse are escalated in part due to the alcohol use. So if I get some alcohol in me, and I'm already abusive at heart, right? Then it just frees me to act that out. Uh, one, of the, one of the tactics that we use in the group when a guy insists that the alcohol is the problem is we'll say, okay, how many drinks does it take before you abuse your wife? And the funny thing is, guys will play along. I don't know, five, six, seven, seven, seven drinks, seven drinks, and I'll slug her. And you're like, what? Like, have you done the math on this? And so they'll say, okay, how many drinks will it take for you to punch a kid in the face? What? I would never punch a kid in the face. Well, you just said seven, I'll get you to point you punch your wife. So how many to punch a kid? I don't know. Okay, well, let's try this. How many to kick your grandma? Like, how many drinks will it take to kick your grandma? Do you see what I'm doing there? I'm trying to reveal that our values are not changed by the alcohol. Well, I'd never kick my grandma. Well, some guy might. But for the most part, the guys are like, I would never kick my grandma. You say, yeah, so it's not the alcohol that's doing it. Your heart's already there. It's just freeing you to do it. This is important for some of the guys I work with because they will intentionally get drunk knowing that they'll abuse. And so this trail of thought is not simply to get them to acknowledge that they're abusive, it's to start pulling the rope to the point where they finally say, okay, you're right. I knew the mood I was in. I knew the fight that we had had. I knew what life was gonna be like when I got home. I didn't wanna deal with it, so I stopped at the grocery store. I got a fifth, and I got liquored up before I got home. Make sense? Now we've got a whole new level of heart motives and discussion points, don't we? And we've gone a little bit farther down the rabbit hole, which will give us a, a little bit more traction. Um, so alcohol lowers our inhibitions. Stimulants are a big part of the culture that we live in. We will encounter people who are using, I've listed cocaine here, although it's not as cool now as it used to be, but uh, you will encounter counselees and in particular abusive people who are using stimulants such as amphetamines, cocaine, or um, other stimulants. They work their way into your body in such a way that um, it increases your activity. It can produce euphoria. Uh, ten foot tall and bulletproof type of stuff. Uh, for instance, we, I was working with, uh, this was a young lady we were working with, and she was addicted to methamphetamine, and she loved it, not because of the way she felt, but because of how quickly she could clean her house. Literally, that's the conversation we had. I can clean my house like that. 
I'm like, of course you can. I mean, you broke the mop at the same time. And you, you know, you, you stepped on the dog, but, or whatever. But, ah! <laughs> this is kind of the, the rage monster type thing that, that we have seen. And again, similar to alcohol, it is not the stimulant that's causing the targeted abuse. By the way, all of us use stimulants. Most of us do. I mean, I had too much coffee this morning. Anybody? Bueller? Yeah. So two sides to this coin. Number one is the stimulant allows me to function the way I want to function. So coffee allows me, helps me function the way I want to function. In much the same way, the amphetamine, the cocaine, or what happens, puts me in a position where I want to function. Now, here's the major problem. What happens if I don't consume caffeine on a regular basis? I get a headache, right? I start to come down. This is a point where, when I, if I'm on stimulants, if I'm using amphetamines or what have you, and I start to come down, do you think I feel good? No. Does it heighten the opportunity for me to lash out, to feel violated? Yeah. So when somebody who's on stimulants, one of the danger points for victims is when they're coming down. I once worked with a young man who was insistent that he would never harm his wife, and I had to understand that he was addicted to meth. At that time, he was consuming meth. That somehow the methamphetamine had caused him to violate his wife. Well, we found instances when he was sober, when he was clean, or when he was high and he abused his wife. Why is that important even for me to find an instance in that pattern when he abused his wife while he was high? He was telling me that it only happened because he was coming down. Well, you know, you're coming down here and you're frustrated and you can't manage your own, you know, emotions, but you were also abusing her when you were high as a kite and everything was awesome. You're probably doing it a lot faster, right? A greater rate of speed. But, and you were also doing it when you were clean. Again, just helping him understand it's not the substance, it's your heart. This is one that most folks would say, okay, Chris, you're getting ready to stretch this. No one has ever used marijuana <laughs> and abused anyone. If anything, like, everything's great, man. No problems, right? Uh, people assume that marijuana is a depressant. Some people assume it's a hallucinogen. It's never been classified that way. The only evidence of hallucinations and paranoia is overuse. Uh, people say you can't overdose on marijuana. You, you probably can't kill yourself with marijuana overdose, but you can make yourself kooky on a marijuana overdose. And so hallucinogenic effects have happened. Um, some people believe because it, it mellows you, is what they call it, that it has no overlap. But healthy relationships share responsibilities, communicate effectively, don't avoid, don't dismiss. I'm telling you, this is back to the heart, right? I know men who toke to avoid conflict. They're, they're as abusive as anybody on the planet. There has to be a decision has to be made, and they say, I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with you. I don't want to deal with life. I don't want to deal with anything. I'm going to go mellow. And while it may not be directly abusive, it reflects the heart. So let's say I've got this guy who has in the past been physically violent. And he says to me, Chris, I don't want to be that way anymore. Well, what are you doing to stop it? I stay stoned. 
I know it's funny, but do you think I've heard it? Yeah. It's a convenient way to avoid the real necessary change. And let me ask you this. Is his wife any more satisfied with stoned dude than she was with aggressive, violent dude? No, same problems are still there. Just a different form of control. Heroin, opiates, painkillers, this is a major problem in in my neck of the woods right now. Um, They cause increased feelings of pleasure, uh, a reduction to physical pain. Uh, can motivate a person to seek out drugs. This is the danger zone for people who are abusive. And this, again, is when you're coming down. Uh, Have you ever known anyone that got in the way of a heroin addict? I literally had a gentleman say to me one time, Chris, if you held a bag of dope over a bridge and my family over a bridge and told me to choose, I would choose the dope every time. Every time. Now, not all heroin addicts are like that, believe it or not. But there's something about his heart, isn't it, that had preconditioned him, predisposed him to, as a heroin addict, he's willing to go through anyone and anything because his comfort is more important than his family. That's the key here. His comfort is more important. I will say one of the buttons that we push quite a bit is what do you do, how do you behave, how do you treat your spouse, how do you act when you're not comfortable, when things aren't going your way. And abusive men in particular freak out when they're out of control. In fact, the most dangerous time, they say, for a victim of domestic violence is when she leaves an abusive relationship. Because at that point, abusive man, abusive man has nothing left to lose. Your risk of domestic homicide increases. So actually, you're in more danger of dying trying to leave sometimes because he's so desperate for control. Sometimes drug seekers, like heroin addicts, want pleasure more than anything. I don't want to hurt anymore. And it's symptomatic of the same heart that says, I'm not going to let you hurt me anymore, or you hurt me anymore, and I'm certainly not going to let my wife hurt me. You can't talk to me like that. You can't say that to me. A couple more. Sexual addiction. Uh, We talked a little bit about pornography. Um, it, It becomes a driving force, and it affects the mental and relational and emotional intimacy. Uh, with your partner. A person who's focused on their partner as a sexual object um, may treat them as such. Objectification is a real uh, aspect to this. So an individual who's addicted to sex may, in matter of fact, just choose to use his wife as an object and not value her as a partner. Uh, Gambling is is very similar, believe it or not, um, and are reflected in things like neglecting responsibility, stealing from the family, a willingness to take uh, money from the bank account, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, While not every addict is an abusive person and not every abusive person is an addict, as you're dealing with different substances and different forms of addiction, it's important to realize that these tactics kind of shift and change. But the main point, the main thing, is that an outside force is not causing them to be domineering and controlling. That that comes from the heart. Uh, Some biblical uh, insight for us, some things to consider uh, from the word. Number one, I love love the uh, no one can serve two masters aspect of things. We are typically, when dealing with abusive people, whether they are addicted 
to a substance or something or not, we're dealing with a double-minded man. You guys are familiar with the double-minded nature, right? So we're dealing with someone who's not singularly focused. He's divided. He's bifurcated. Uh, Jesus says that he'll either hate one master and love the other or be devoted to one, despise the other. You can't serve God in money. Uh, but in our case, you, you can't serve God in yourself. You can't serve God in your substance. Both the addict and the abuser, even if they're not co-occurring, both of them are divided. Both of them are divisive. Now, together, it's just a symptom of the same problem, is it not? Right? Just because a guy has a co-occurring problem, he's addicted and he's abusive, it doesn't change the underlying heart issue, which is he's double-minded. And you'll see that as you begin to ask him questions, is what are you living for? What's the most important thing in your life right now? How often do you think they're going to say the glory of God? Not very often, are they? Most of our counselors don't do that, do they? Now, sometimes you'll get a smart aleck who will do that with the glory of God, because I heard you say that, Pastor Chris. Okay, and then I can be like, well, how is God most glorified by your pornography addiction? Give me five, the five top ways in which God is most glorified by your pornography. I'll wait. I'll write them on the board. <laughs> right? Give me the five ways in which God's most glorified by the names you called your wife. Or you see where, I know it's sarcastic, but it is sincere in a way too because you can't get by with that if your practical theology doesn't match your actual uh, stated theology. Uh, I do love the description in James 1 as well that the, the man who doubts is like a wave of the sea, just blown around, tossed. Uh, that person should not respect, expect to receive anything from the Lord. That's a double-minded person. They're unstable. And there is an instability uh, to the people that we're dealing with. This is why control is so important, by the way. Um, it's like the bully. You guys know the, the whole bullying thing. It's like the bully, they say culturally, he feels bad about himself. And he's trying to make other people look worse. There's some truth to that, that like if I can make you feel bad, then I feel good. Because at least I'm not you, right? Well, in an abusive situation, the idea is, you know what? Things in my life, I'm uncomfortable. You're going to be more uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable, I'm going to medicate myself, and I'm going to harm you. So in biblical counseling, some of the things we're going to do, guys, is we're going to identify the problem or the problems. And I'm going to suggest that the main problem is not his addiction or necessarily his behavior. It is his heart. We go back to that lecture from yesterday. The main problem here is what you want. So tell me what you want. What you really, really, nobody, okay. It's, I thought we were getting too serious, so I was trying to throw a joke out there. No Spice Girl fans. Okay. Um, and the heart is going to desire more of what it wants. Uh, to be, and it will be briefly satisfied with drugs or with control. Both addiction and domestic violence are about idolatry. Serving something other than the living God. A couple ways in which this manifests itself. First, the addict is in bondage to a substance while dominating his wife. This is what we call a co-occurring addiction. What I mean by that is the addiction may not be directly related. He may not be using it as a tool. He may just simply have an addiction. At the same time, he's also dominating his wife. So the sister's question a second ago, I'm going to deal with both of them, assuming that both of them are coming from the same place, the same heart the same uh, issue when it comes to sin and suffering. Each represent a need for the gospel 
So we are going to promote in each instance confession, repentance, and transformation. Again, I say each instance because I, I want to guard against that pitfall we talked about, that landmine, which is only focusing on the one without the other. So we're going to bring them together and say, okay, I don't know if they're connected, don't care if they're connected, they're both wrong, they're both destroying you, let's promote change. The other option that I think is probably more prevalent and the one I want to draw your attention to, the addict may use his addiction to maintain control over his partner. Addiction can be a powerful tool to keep people in line. I think I told you yesterday about the young man that I worked with who was the drug dealer and he had uh, introduced his wife to heroin and then he subsequently began to beat her when she continued to use after she was pregnant. And his justification was that he was a righteous person because he couldn't stand it when people hurt kids. Even though he was the one who had got her hooked on the substance to begin with. See, getting her hooked was a great way to keep her dependent. He had a free supply that she had access to. Uh, he could withhold that supply if she didn't conform. So not only did she have the normal, normative, in a, in a way, weight or pressure of abuse, she had the added pressure of the physiological and spiritual longings to consume the product, consume the substance. So even though he was addicted, he used his addiction as a way to maintain control. He can do that by justifying his violence. We talked about that, saying, well, I only do that when I'm high, when I'm off, when I'm using, when I'm coming down. He can also use it as a direct form of abuse, such as getting her addicted um, or, or even premeditatively using. Like we said earlier, I know we're going to have a conflict. I don't really want to deal with it, so I'm going to get liquored up before I get home. So I can use it not only as an excuse, but a direct form of abuse. Because I hear this all the time, well, Chris, I can't be responsible if I blacked out. So then the question goes down, what, what route do you think the question goes down? Well, what led to your blackout? What decisions did you make to blackout? How do you benefit from blacking out? Well, nobody benefits from blacking out. Well, I mean, you're having trouble being accountable to me. That seems like a benefit for you, right? So just, a lot of us just shifting the questions so that we're not letting him dictate but we're letting the direction that we want to go dictate, the direction that is towards repentance. And then, of course, introducing the partner, as we said, uh, as part of that. Uh, we want to address motives. Uh, you know James 4, we've talked about that this week, what causes fights and quarrels among you. Don't they come from alcohol? No. Don't they come from heroin? No, they come from the desires that battle within you. So there's more to this. I, I want to help him develop a worldview that, that he can adopt that says, okay, at the end of the day, I realize my substance use or my addiction is not causing this. I'm choosing this. You know that control is the goal, and so that's one of the things that we're going to be trying to uncover. We already know that. It's not going to help him for me to tell him that. This is a mistake that uh, I made early on and one that as I'm coaching and working with counselors, one that they make about, you know, an hour or 45 minutes into the second session, the counselor's really frustrated because he hasn't acknowledged anything yet, <laughs> right? Okay, you've been working with him for an hour and 45 minutes. He's not going to acknowledge anything. You've got a long way to go, right? We're about 45 minutes into the second session. The counselor goes, 
don't you think that you're just being controlling? Like, let me give you some help. <laughs> you're controlling. I already know he's controlling. I don't need that information. He needs that information. So I'm trying to ask him questions, uh, not in such a way that he parrots me the answers, but that he self-reflects enough to say, wow, yeah, I want control. I don't want to be uncomfortable. And you have a list there uh, of behaviors that are consistent with that. We want to, for both the addict and the abuser, and certainly the individual who has the co-occurring issues or who's using his addiction as a means of abuse, we want to promote the mind of Christ. Do you think pride has anything to do with this? Yes. <laughs> yes. Thank you. You were listening yesterday. Or perhaps you read the book, which I would say you could pick up downstairs, but you can't. Please order online. I'm just um, yeah, pride has a great deal to do with this. And so one of the tasks that I use, and this, this will be a side note, not necessarily for our topic today, but it certainly relates to the passage in Philippians 2. I assign Stuart Scott's lists, his manifestations of pride and humility. You guys familiar with that? Uh, Stuart was gracious enough to let me include it in the book. I use uh, a document... And I asked the guys to um, do the highlight or the circle gimmick, you know, like we do in biblical counseling. It's like highlight five to seven that apply to you, right? You know, and I want to talk about it. And I use those lists to just help them see some of the ways in which pride work out in their life. I like the list in part because most of my guys haven't thought through that. They usually, like many things, most of my guys are very black and white or I like to call it all or nothing thinking. You know, this is my, one of my favorite pushbacks is, what was I supposed to do, Chris? What was I supposed to do? My favorite answer is, well, not what you did. <laughs> but but the, the idea here is when I get asked that question is, now you tell me, Chris, what you would have done differently. Because any sane person or reasonable person would have done what I'd done. Right? So I usually don't play the game. You know, what would, what would you have done? What should I have done differently? And I usually then go back to talking about, well, let me ask you, why are there only two choices? Have you ever, like, let's make a list. What other things could you have done? You tell me, right? You seem to communicate to me that you either have to hurt someone or run away, right? And somehow running away makes you look weak when that's not possible, right? So what are some other options here? Just to kind of broaden that thinking. The pride and humility list does that because many of the men I work with are not thinking through those categories. And so I will typically have men come back with the list and say, well, I never, I never thought this was prideful. I never thought this was arrogant. You know, uh, we want to promote the mind of Christ. Philippians 2 is there for you. You guys should be familiar with that. Um, Paul, in this verse, this passage, does not simply give us a command to be humble but a course in humility. So he walks us through uh, aspects of humility. I actually take that passage as I'm working with guys and they have to work through it verse by verse with underlines that I've already established. And then I have a series of questions that they work through. We won't go through those today because our topic's about this co-occurring issue. But one of the things I like to do is just to help them contrast how they view the world and how Jesus viewed the world. You probably heard me say that yesterday. I really want my guys to have a redeemed view of power and position. And so one of the ways I do that is by really trying to present a Jesus hermeneutic. I think while Pauline uh, scriptures are wonderful and the Old Testament is wonderful, I really want my guys to start with Jesus because he's as prototypical as we have of what it means to be strong, uh, powerful, 
and yet humble, servant-oriented, right? So I really like that Philippians 2. Let's start there and then evaluate our own life through the lens of Jesus so that you can see things like humility, uh, what it means to have power available to you but not use it in a destructive way and so on. So I compare and contrast his abusive behavior and controlling motivation with the mind of Christ. With both the addict and the abuser and those who are struggling uh, with both at the same time, we're looking for evidence of change. I was just uh, talking about this uh, in the last hour in the small group, in the podcast, that many, and we talked about this, I think, yesterday, many of us view, have viewed repentance, unfortunately, as a quick act, as something that happens instantaneously. And the unfortunate thing about that is if we don't have, I think, a broader view of repentance, then we'll acknowledge worldly sorrow as acceptable. You know what I'm saying there, guys? So if I'm quick to confess, yeah, I'm, I was wrong, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I'm straight and narrow from now on, Pastor Chris. And my response is, awesome. Let's start marriage counseling. Let's get you back in the house, right? I, I could be putting someone in danger. I want evidentiary Repentance. I want to see it in action, right? I'm like, that's an awesome commitment. Now show me what it looks like. I'll coach you. I'll help you. But we got to take some steps like that. When's a thief no longer a thief? Well, when he's known as a generous person. Well, you don't go from being, I stole something last night and I gave it away to a friend. That doesn't make you generous, <laughs> right? There's got to be this intermediary. I'm glad you like that one. I'll be here all week. Not really. I'm leaving today. Um, there's got to be that intermediary point of observation. So we're looking for evidence of change. One of the things I'm looking for is that we should expect to see changes in how this man relates to God, others, and self. You remember at the very beginning, we were talking about how alcohol lowers your inhibitions. And I said something along the lines of, it doesn't change our values. It changes our judgment. And even if I'm intoxicated, how I view others, God and myself hasn't changed. I'm just now more free to live it out. I want to see over time, certainly I want sobriety to be part of this, but I want to see over time not just a shift in the behaviors I use. I want to see that in the behaviors that this man uses. I want to see a shift in from the substances to freedom. But you know, more importantly, what I want to see is I want to see a shift in the area of worship, how he relates to God. Because quite frankly, he's been worshiping at the altar of self, has he not? And what's, what's wicked is he has been not only inviting other people to worship at the altar of self, he's been forcing the person closest to him to participate in that. You have to lift me up. You have to support me. You have to do this. I want to observe how he interacts with others. That's the aspect, obviously, of fellowship. I want to see how he relates to other people. Is he loving people more and using them less? Is our relationship shifting? Like, is it, am I, I don't want to say am I doing less work, but I guess the question is, is the work becoming a little easier? <laughs> right? Not because he's more compliant, because he's probably going to be compliant from the beginning. It benefits him to be compliant, right? But is he more self-reflective? Is he owning more things? Are my challenges met instead with resistance? Are they met with an embrace? Is biblical truth being adopted? 
How's he relating to other people? And then lastly, how he relates to himself. Now, I know we, as biblical counselors, don't believe there's three commands here. I do not believe there's three commands in the Great Commandment either. But I do think there are three characters here. And a proper positioning of self is important to the passage, is it not? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. If I've elevated myself to the position of God, then I've not put myself in a proper place. I think it's Paul that even says, right, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. There's a place for you in this. You're just not the top. <laughs> it's like my dad, like I told you guys yesterday, like my dad used to say, Christopher, the more people you add to your family, the less important you become. <laughs> right? So is he changing in the area of how he relates to God, how he relates to himself, how he relates to others. Bottom line, if you are working with abusive men or victims, you will also be working with addiction. The odds are really good. And knowing um, how they work together and how they're not related can really make a lot of difference in the direction that you go in your counseling. Fair enough? Yes. Okay, it is four o'clock. That is a perfect presentation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, thanks guys. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org. Thank you.